Great, good morning again and welcome to Freedom Church. My name's Brian and I'm part of the family here at Freedom uh, for now. Me and Sarah will be putting our house on the market in February and we're going to be moving to church plant in Birmingham. It's that fun, we want to do it multiple times. So be encouraged, like church planting is great fun. Um, so we're currently in between teaching series right now, so we've just had one and we'll be starting another one very soon um, when Josh returns back to us after having his beautiful little baby boy, Hudson. So very exciting, but today I got a bit of a free topic, so I got to choose what I wanted to, I felt God wanted to speak on. So as I've been praying and preparing for today, I felt God led me to Matthew 22, to the parable of the wedding feast. And this parable is told by Jesus to help us understand the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God isn't like other kingdoms of the world, but basically the kingdom of God is anywhere where Jesus sits on the throne, in us, his church, and we can see God's kingdom breaking into the world around us um, as he makes his glory known through miracles, through healing. So God's kingdom is basically anywhere where God rules, which is everywhere, I just want to let you know. The, the earth and everything in belongs to the Lord. Um, And this morning we're going to be looking at this parable and unpacking some of the powerful truths about the kingdom of God that Jesus is teaching us. So let's get straight into it. We don't have the words, so you're going to have to bear. I I will confess, I am dyslexic, so my reading sometimes can go interesting. But follow me. If you've got a Bible, it might be easier. Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, says this. Again... Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calf have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out. those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they had found, all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him up hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's so much power and meat on the bones of this parable. And I want to spend some time this morning just exploring what I feel Jesus wanted to make known about the kingdom. And I have three points I want to share with you today, which are these. There's an invite, there's a feast, and there's a warning. So let's start with there's an invite. Have, have, it's a rhetorical question, I'll start. Have you ever been invited to something? Most of us have, I think. How did it feel? Was it exciting? Were you excited? Maybe you'd been expecting the invite for quite a while, so you've been waiting for it for a while. And I think often receiving an invite is a good thing. It's special. It means that you're important, valuable. It means that someone wants you to be there. 
So what's the best thing you've ever been invited to? So this is, I like a bit of response, so I'm going to ask you to use your best teacher voice. What's the best thing you've ever been invited to? Come on, some people share, or I will just point at people and ask. Go on then. The birth of your doctor, baby. So your grandchild, that's going to be hard to top. Straight away. My eldest daughter's wedding. Wedding, well, this daughter's wedding. A barbecue. A barbecue? Oh, come on, I don't know, that's pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always looking forward to funerals. Invited funerals. The best thing I've been to a party. A party? I think often invites are quite exciting, aren't they? They're, they're, they're really good. So that's really good responses. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about an invite I received. Um, it's probably not what you'd expect. It was actually for a cup of tea. Now, you're probably thinking it must have been with someone super famous or royalty or something like that. It must be celebrity. It can't just be. It can't just be for tea, but you would be wrong. It was just a cup of tea. And it was from a youth worker called Lee. So when I was about, I'd been about 13, 14, my mate comes around to my house on weekend and he's like, Brian, our dog went missing and we, and we know this guy, we've got it, he's, he's stolen. It's Lee, Lee Brown, the local youth worker. He's at his house, he's got our dog. So it's Christians stealing dogs. The injustice, I had to do something about this. So in all my wisdom of 14, which was vast as you can imagine, I was like, we should go and tell him, we should go around and let him know the, the kind of the, the, the crime he has committed. I'd love to say that was my intent. I think my intent was a bit more malice, like a bit more malice than that. So we go around, I'll set context, I'm a Hesel, like proper Hesel road lad. So I go around to his house, banging on his door, and he comes to the door, and, and then I walk, Use the words I used. Uh, I'm a transformed person through Jesus. There was a few choice words I said, but the general gist was that you're a thief. How can you call yourself a Christian? Stealing people's dogs, that type of stuff. Not very nice. And Lee Brown said to me, he said, Do you want to come in for a cup of tea? <laughs> now, in this day and age, if there was any children here, Matilda, she was here, I'd be saying, if, if an adult invites <laughs> you into their house for a cup of tea, don't go. But in, back in the 90s, that was just normal practice for youth work, particularly because, it, yeah. So we did. Me and John, my friend, went into the house, went for a cup of tea. Now, as I walked in, I was eyeing up around, as you do, because you've cautious, never been in. There was a PlayStation in the living room on the floor. Now, being from where my background, I never dreamed I'd have a PlayStation or anything. So this was like, oh, wow, we've got a PlayStation. And I think Lee used the PlayStation to great advantage to win me over for the gospel. So we had a cup of tea. And that was my journey. That was my initial invite. You see, the significance of this story is far more than the moment itself. The invite for a cup of tea actually led to my life being eternally changed. It led to me giving my life to Jesus. But this was one of many invites I received over years given lovingly from Lee and other people. Some of you guys know Phil Ervin from, from Jubilee. He was my youth worker after I became Christian for a number of years. And they invited me well, many different times into their home, to church. They took me to camps. They invited me to eat dinner with them. And each invite was bringing me closer to Jesus. I'm always amazed in this parable that the king, after being insulted by the refusal of the invite 
the guests that, that they sent out. I'm always amazed that he then sends his guests out again to extend the invitation. So he sends them out and he gets refused a king. And then he sends them out again. And they say no again. And it's beyond generous what he's doing there. It's so undeserved. God continues to go after his children even when they're unfaithful and they don't respond to his grace and goodness. The truth is, none of us deserve the invite in the first place. And the Bible is quite clear on this. In Romans 3, 23, 24, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, it's only because of God's love for us that he continues to pursue us, to send his servants out to invite us to this wedding feast. It's not deserved, it's not earned, it's just because of who God is. And there's real challenge in that. And I believe Lee understood some of that challenge. See, what I didn't tell you about the start of my relationship with Lee was actually the previous to the cup of tea. Um, so before I met Lee in that moment, I had actually met Lee a few times at the youth groups he used to lead. But I wasn't what you would call a model young person. Um, I, was, I think it's things like trying to fit in with other young people in the area who maybe had not so good intentions, whatever it was. And I used to go to the youth groups and basically destroy as much as I could, like just ruin it for everyone, you know, get fight with the kids who were going, even though they didn't want to fight. I would I'd just tear things over in the room. It's in a Baptist church, we'd climb up onto the, and, and Chris knows this, remember the balcony around the top and the kayaks on the balcony would go run around, throwing stuff on the ground, doing the, it was weird. It was Methodist, they love buildings and rooms in Methodist church. Have you noticed that? Methodist church had loads of rooms. So there's loads of places to hide, loads of places to mess around. And I got banned, so we'd climb in through the toilet windows and various things and do more, and caused a lot of hassle. And that was Lee's experience. I used to call him vile stuff, accuse him of various tendencies that, because he was a youth worker and worked with young people, I just wasn't very nice to him. There was no reason for Lee to be that way with me. And later in years, actually, off topic here, but on topic. Years later, I was at Lee's flat. He's my godfather. Um, and I was sat in his flat and he pulled out some of his old diaries because he's a very creative writing person and he showed me what he'd written on some of the days I'd attended groups. And he was very generous, really. He was quite nice. But it, he, like, when he said things like, Brian Tender, I just don't understand why he's being like this, why he's doing this, he's done this. Brian turned up again, did this, Brian done this. And I was like, oh. And he said to me, he said, the day I read, he said, I saw you pushing an old lady called Miss Peach down Hazel Road. It was an old lady who lived down the street and I used to take her out when I was twagging school. And she was buying me lunch, which was lovely as well. And he said, he saw me pushing her down Hazel Road and he said, God told him I'd become a Christian that day. He knew I'd become a Christian. And he knew, even despite all that stuff. You see, Lee understood some of God's heart for his creation. He understood his heart for me. And he never stopped extending the invite, despite how I treated him. He never stopped believing that God could bring me in and he never stopped loving me in their times. And I believe that's a challenge for all of us because you don't know what's going to happen with the invites you extend. As you invite people in, there's always an opportunity that they're going to respond and meet and encounter the living God and to receive that invite that we've received as Christians to that wedding feast. And if you're a Christian, you, you might remember when you were invited some of us were invited from our parents, our friends, youth workers. 
And now that same truth and invite that we receive compels us to go and invite other people because we want them to enjoy all the fruit and goodness that we've enjoyed as we've become Christians. So who are you inviting, I guess is the first question I'd like to ask. Who are you bringing into your life? Who are you inviting into your home, your friendship groups, for a coffee or tea, for lunch, for a chat? Because we don't know when someone will respond to that invite. So we, I want to challenge you and encourage you to never stop inviting people. Because there is a wedding feast that we'll be invited to, which is my next point. Now I had lots of cool pictures on the PowerPoint that I wanted to show you, but I'll have to use my descriptive skills to make it seen in your mind. I might ask you to close your eyes maybe and visualise it at points. People love a good feast, don't they? Put your hands up if you love a feast. We love a feast. You see, I think food transcends culture and time itself. Like, whatever culture you go to, wherever you, wherever you go, like, that's one of the reasons we go on holiday, isn't it? Because we love to encounter food from other cultures. But wherever you go, food is a common place. For a couple of reasons. The most primary is that we die without it. But the other reason is it's just so good. We love a feast. And feasting's great. And no more is it more evident that we love a feast than at our wedding. Now, I've been a Christian since I was about 16. I had a bit of a wilderness period, kind of came back in my early 20s. But I would say since being about 24, 25, I can't count how many weddings I've been to now. Because Christians love to get married. Uh, I'll tell you that. There's a few reasons, which is not kids' jobs, I, could, I won't go into though. But one of the biggest reasons is the import- we understand the importance of marriage and as being the way that God brings two people into one in his eyes, that he, brings it, that he joins them together. And no one loves marriage more. It's important to his sons, more important to God. And it's really important when you're understanding this feast that the context it takes place in is a wedding. As when we understand the significance of the invite and the celebration. You see, this wedding was Jesus describing in the parable when he returns to claim his bride and the church. So that's pretty significant. He's He's telling them about what is to come. This is the future kingdom. This is what I'm, I'm going to do. There'll be a time when I return and there'll be a feast. And as it reads, some well, anyone's invited, but not, not all will come, choose to come. And some will try to come and think they can come, but they won't be, they won't be in the right garments. It's important. Now, as much as we say we love the wedding service, let's all be honest. We all know what we love about going to a wedding for the day. It's the food, isn't it? Come on. That was just me. No, it's just me. Oh, my own again. <laughs> well, anyway, here's the food, I think. And um, the food can be hit or miss at weddings. I don't know about you, I've been to numbers of weddings. And it, have you ever noticed it's never average food? It's always either really good or... Yeah. It's never like, you don't go, oh, it was alright. It's like, it's either really good or... Oh, could have done without one, really. But anyway, me, Sarah, and a few friends, we started playing this bit of a game where we'd guess the meal at weddings and events before we went if we didn't know what it was. And we've done this so many times, I think we can now say that what we understand as the, the core meals is now, um, we've got hard evidence. We could collate it, put it in statistics and, and release it as a report. And I think we're on, we're on to a winner with this. But I'm going to see if you guys agree. I did have some pictures here and things there. But, so num- what do you think? Let's have a guess. For starters, what is the common starter at an event or wedding? It is, it's soup. Olive is good for a party, I love the volleyball. But it is soup. Soup without a doubt. 
And we love cream of soups in the UK, don't we? Cream of, we put cream in everything. It does make everything taste good though. Cream of chicken. Um, I, love, I love broccoli and blue cheese. I don't know about you guys. Carrot, coriander, that type of stuff. But soup is the standard go-to. What about a main? Oh, oh, I like a beef wellington, a bit of a duck cell, like chopped mushrooms and stuff nice. It's not... Chicken. Chicken! You two are on it. How many weddings have you been to? Like, it is chicken. Come on, let's be honest. Everywhere you go, it's like chicken something. Now, we tend to go for breast. I like the thighs. I like, I like kind of darker meat on the chicken, but it is chicken. Chicken with a sauce and a selection of vegetables is the most common thing I've encountered. See, this is building evidence now for my, for my thesis now. And then dessert, what do we think? Gatto. Gatto, oh, gatto's a good one. Cheesecake. Cheesecake. <laughs> it is cheesecake. Now, I've got my theories on this. It's because cheesecake's so diverse, though, isn't it? Like, you can have strawberry, blue, you can have fruit, you can go for nut-based cheesecakes, you can bake them, have them cold. They do, they do all sorts, and it's the two things that most people love, cake and cheese. Now, cheese should be amazing sweet, but it is. We just have to accept that. Cheesecake, without a doubt. That would be the three. Now, I love all of those things, and individually, there's nothing wrong with any of them. But it doesn't sound like the type of feast a king would have, does it? Like, if you turned up at a royal feast and you're like, oh, we've got tomato soup for starter, you'd be like, this better be the best tomato soup ever. It better, like, float into my mouth and, and like, turn into something different again. And, uh, yeah, it better be unreal, because I would be disappointed. But that, to be honest, is not what we do. Now, I did have a pic, picture on this of our very own royal wedding of their, of their menu. Now, I can't remember it off the top of my head, I was going to read it, but let's just say that it was that posh. All the meats had, like, as a, red, a resume of where they had been in their life and things like that. So it was like the salmon had done a, a, a master's degree before it was killed. It was like, it was pretty extravagant. And then a, a saddle of lamb that was stroked till it was two years old. It was, it was pretty, and a jus made of like, of, of like saffron and dreams. It was like pretty extensive. It was good. It was a really nice menu. They had a, they'd obviously spent a lot of money taxpayer money, but a lot of it. Um, they spent a lot of money on it. It was, it was good. I would have loved to have had a piece of it. But I'm going to be honest. Nobody, no region, no people on this earth feast better than the far, than the east, than the Middle East, than, than the people around, you know, the, the areas of the Middle East, the Mediterranean. They feast better than any people in the world, without a doubt. And I can prove it because I actually had a picture of a camel. But this wasn't an ordinary roasted camel. This camel was stuffed with a sheep that had then been stuffed with chickens, that had then been stuffed with fish, that had then been stuffed with eggs. This wasn't just any camel. It definitely wasn't the best camel. It was, it was a Saudi Arabian, Saudi Arabian feasting camel. It looked amazing. If you're not a media, I apologize. I, I, can't, I can't contain my love of meat. Um, around people, but it looks phenomenal. And they don't just feast for a day, they feast, like, they don't just feast like we do, we, we, we're really, in England, we're just like, we'll feast for an hour, two hours, and then we'll do something else. Like, no, we'll feast for days. Like, we'll be eating for days, we'll just, it's a bit extravagant, but that's what it's like, a feast the kings would have. These feasts were the pinnacle of extravagance, generosity, wealth. To refuse would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? It'd be absolutely ludicrous. Now, the Jewish culture at the time understood the significance of what this feast in the parable meant. They'd have been absolutely mortified and blown away that people would refuse the invite. This was the king. 
you don't refuse the king. Not only that, it's a royal feast. These people lived in the reality of famine and, every, and hunger as every day. To be invited to a royal feast wasn't just like, oh yeah, we're going to have a little bit of food, a bit of music and a dance. This was like a once in a lifetime opportunity. They'd have been blown away. They'd have been like, what are they doing? Now what they didn't understand, and sometimes what we don't understand is that, before we were Christians, is he was speaking to the people who don't accept the invite to, to him. It was the moment there, it was like a now and a not yet invitation saying, you people now, you sat Pharisees, reject me right now. I'm inviting you to something far beyond your understanding. And it's the invite we send out today that people still refuse. They'd have been absolutely mortified, but in their blindness and in, in some of our blindness, they didn't understand that they were the very people. They were refusing the goodness and generosity and grace of the king. I love Spurgeon. Anyone a fan of Spurgeon is a great theologian. And he puts things in a way that I just wish I could. And he says this. It's quite weird, but it's very well written. While I am speaking of this generous method, my heart glows with sacred, sacred adore, and my wonder rises that men do not come to the banquet of love which honours all its guests. When the banquet is so costly to the host, so free to the guests, and so honourable to all concerned, how is it that there should be found any so unwise as to refuse the favour? Surely here is an illustration of the folly of the unrenewed heart and the proof of deep depravity which sin has caused. If men turn their backs on Moses with his stony tablets, I do not marvel, but to despise the loaded table of grace heaped with oxen, oxen and fatlings, this is strange. To resist the justice of God is a crime, but to repel the generosity of heaven, what is this? We must invent a term of infamy with which to brand this base ingratitude. To resist God in majesty of terror is insanity, but to spare him in the majesty of his mercy is something more than madness. Sin reaches its climax when it resolves to starve, the, the starve sooner than all anything to divine goodness. Good divine goodness. That's like a mic drop moment. How powerful that is that? Like, he's saying here, how deep must our sin run to respond to God in that way when he puts what he puts before us is grace so freely and we openly reject it. Sin cripples us from seeing all that God has given us so freely that he gives freely to us. Our sin cripples us, it blinds us. Now, if I was God, and I'm not, I will put that, I would find a way to remind my people of all that I've done for them, a way to remind them of their inheritance, something they could do together to remember the cost I paid for them. If only there was something we could do as a symbol to remember all that God has done for us. I'm being a bit sarcastic now. I think we all know where this is going. Well, there is. Look at this, the bread and the wine. Now, today I will just off on an off topic. It is um, individuals and um, little ones. It's grape juice, I think, so it's not wine, so I, I believe, so it's not alcoholic, so. But there is, look at this feast. How many, let's be honest, who thinks about a feast when I pointed at that? Not many people. <laughs> They're like, what? This is back to the chicken analogy again, Brian. <laughs> Where, where's the tomato soup? Where is it? 
See, when we come to the table to break bread and drink wine, we're remembering Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. We're remembering all that he's taught us and commanded us. We remember his grace and love for us. It's beautiful and a wondrous feast. But it's also more than this. Let's be really honest for a minute. How many of us approach breaking bread quite like solemn and sad? With sad solemn thoughts. Now, maybe there's a deep sense of repentance and and that's a godly thing. And we often approach it because we're often, I think what we do is we, when we look at the bread and wine and we remember Christ dying on the, on the cross for our sin, it leads us to think of our own sin and how far we fall short of God's goodness of, how, of, of, of you know, what, he, what he asks of us. And I think that's not a bad place. You know, the Bible's clear we should come to the table with repentance. But how often do you attempt, like, approach the table dancing or rejoicing? See, I think it can be really easy for us to forget that breaking bread is actually a celebration. In focusing on the blood and death, we can miss that promise of, of what the kingdom to come is, the kingdom, the future kingdom Jesus is talking about in this parable. Our kingdom inheritance, the promise that brings the, inc- the excitement, the anticipation, the joy, the celebration, because we know as believers, if you're a believer, you know what this is leading to. You know where the story ends. You know what happens at the end. Jesus returns in power and glory and claims his bride, and we feast and we live in eternity with our God. We know the ending. So celebrating is, a, is, a, is an apt response. Because when we, when we look at the table and we look at the bread and wine, we're not just contemplating on the now, we're also contemplating on the not yet. The promises of what Jesus has said will come as well, the feast. See, the feast in the parable is of the highest significance. It's the eternal union of Christ and his bride in pointing to the time when we will be joined with Jesus forever and God the Father wants us all to attend. He wants all of us to enjoy his goodness, grace and mercy and love. But we can't experience it in its fullness yet because the feast, like I said, is we enjoy some of it now in the breaking of bread and in some of our feasting when we feast at home with our brothers and sisters. But we won't enjoy the fullness of the feast until Christ returns. Jesus left us the breaking of bread as the symbol and the way we celebrate and remember all that has been and is to come. And we look forward to the day when we'll be joined with Jesus and we'll be experiencing that very feast he's talking about. In Revelation 21, once for it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Does that not excite you a little bit? It should. It really, really should. It should because, like, let's be honest, the world can be pretty rubbish at times now. Just look out your window, for one, but then if you watch the news, just seeing the stuff that's happening in the world today, around the world, in the UK and other countries, it's not the best place at times. It's a painful, it's a place of suffering where we encounter suffering, we live for suffering, but this is saying there'll be a time when all that is gone. 
And we'll come back to the feast aspects again when we break bed together. But I, want to, I just want to share my third point, which is this. There is a warning. See, the parable comes with a stark warning for us all. In verses 11 to 14, it says, But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now it's clear from those verses that there is significance in the wedding garment. It's how the king identified that this man was out of place. It was the equivalent of going to a wedding and someone going in rags and everyone else is dressed in suits and dresses and really nice formal gear. To the king it was clear that this guy was out of place. He was not supposed to be at the feast. Now most theologians agree that the wedding garment represents the righteousness of Christ that we're clothed in when we become Christians. See, righteousness is about being in right standing with God. Our sin separated us from God, and without this righteousness, we're unable to be in relationship with him in his presence. We're unable to enter the wedding feast. It's our wedding garment. Christ's righteous clothing us is how the Father identifies that we're chosen to be part of that party. Not by anything you bring, it's not the presence. It wasn't the fact if this guy had turned up with some amazing gift, the fact that the, the, the king would have no more said, Oh, well, it's alright because you brought me a lovely gift. He wasn't in the right garments. He wasn't wearing the righteousness of Christ. And we can't make ourselves righteous. The Bible, again, is clear on this Romans 3, 21 to 22. It says, But apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, which is basically non-believers. Jesus is the only way to enter the feast. John 3, 16, Romans 10, and 9 and 10, Philippians 3, 4 to 11, they all say very clearly that we can't earn or cheat our way into God's kingdom. But some will try. So what are some of the ways people might try? Now I don't know about you, many people in the world do this now and even in the church. And you hear people say, and you may have heard it, where people say things like, oh I've lived a good life, I treat people really well. Is that not enough? Unfortunately it's not. <laughs> Because the truth, the truth is, no, even the most loving, caring, kind person on this earth brings nothing that would enable them to enter God's kingdom. God's standard is not the same as ours. Being kind isn't the, the prerequisite to being saved. As we read in the Old Testament, we can see time and time again people trying to live to God's standard, the law, and falling short. And I spoke about that last time, didn't I, about how the law just reminds us that we haven't got what it takes to live to God's standard, and we never would. So no matter how good a life you live, the scales will always be ticked. Never, they'll never tip in your favour, they'll always be out of balance. If it was that simple, and we could do it ourselves, what was the point of Jesus? If you could just solve all your sin problems, Jesus holds no relevance to say, like, well, I'll do it myself. We all know where that leads. It never leads anywhere nice. Some Christians fall into the trap of believing that doing good works, they can work their way into God's kingdom. And this isn't a new thing. 
this thinking's been in the church right from the beginning and Paul challenges this directly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And I want to say something really important to you today. You could go your whole life without ever doing a good deed or a good work. And if you believe in Jesus and Jesus is Lord in your life, you will still enter God's kingdom. Because it's not about anything you can do or bring. Now, hear me right here. Every Christian I know who loves Jesus and is being changed into his likeness are doing amazing things. They're serving God, they're loving their neighbours, they're loving their family, they're, you know, they're doing they're trying to be good in their jobs they, you know, they respect people and they do all the things right they're, they're showing God's love, they're doing great things but that's not how they get into God's kingdom because the verse teaches clearly don't they, that how we enter the feast is achieved through Christ it's through being clothed in his righteousness and that's not something you can earn Jesus did that for you on the cross all we have to do is accept that invitation So just to finish in a bit of um, um, Antoine, if you want to come up now, it's alright. Just as I prayed, a couple of things were on my mind this morning. So if you're a Christian, I just want you to allow this to sink in. God has chosen you to be free of the curse of sin. That same sin that caused many of the people invited to the feast to reject the unbelievable grace and love of God. We are here today gathered in the knowledge and truth that we are VIPs at the wedding feast. That one day we'll be with our king for all eternity. And this must lead us to action. The invite is still open. I don't see Jesus. I mean, it does say it'll come like a thief tonight. It could happen any second, but I don't see him right now. So that means there's still inviting to do. There's still people to invite. And we're the messengers. If you're a believer, you are God's method to reach the people in the streets. When we break bread in a minute, we'll remember that Jesus, what Jesus has done. And we do that to encourage, as we do that, it encourages us and motivates us to share all that we've received through Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I believe that God has something for you as well. See, that invite is open. God's deepest desire is that you would respond to him. And the feast represents all the goodness and blessing God has for you. And it's there for you and it's given freely. Now if you want to respond to that invite, myself, Clive, or maybe someone that you know from Freedom um, would love to pray with you for that. So don't miss this opportunity to respond to the most important invite you'll ever receive in your life. So we're going to break bread. But we can't do it. I envisioned in my mind, like... Like being able to like break it together and do all you know, but COVID just kind of likes to, to spoil our fun sometimes. Hopefully not for long, much longer. So we can't like how we could break bread in little groups and be like you know celebrate. So we're gonna but we're gonna still break bread and we're gonna celebrate. So the bread and the wine are individually portioned here. Well, bread and juice, I'll say because then people are confused. Individually portioned. So what we're gonna we're gonna respond in worship, a celebration. I want us to praise. If you need to get yourself in the right place with God, let's do that. And then when you're ready. You know, you might want to dance to the bringing the bread. You can dance. I want you to be excited because this is a celebration. If you love Jesus and know Jesus, 
that feast, that promise, that feast is for you. If you if you can't celebrate about that, it, and, and I mean this in the nicest way, seeing the birth of children, going to weddings for your children, um, seeing your children graduate or going to parties, it fails into insignificance in comparison to God's goodness. And I, and I know that being a dad, I've seen my daughter born, I know what that meant to me. But compared to God's goodness, that will just seem like the smallest thing in the grand scheme of everything. So if we can't celebrate about this, about what Jesus has done and will do, I don't know what we can celebrate about. So I'm challenging you, let's celebrate, let's really kind of say, God, I, fill me with joy, he can do that. I'm going to celebrate, and then as you're ready, come and get your bread and wine, take it back to where you are, and you can have it, and we'll continue just to worship as we do that. If you'd like prayer, um, Clive and myself will be at the front, we'd love to pray with you. Thank you.